welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Marco Gottini. He's a Berkeley Columbia Executive MBA, Class of 2011 alumni. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Marco, how do we meet? We met on an uh, alumni chapter event, right? Yeah, it was a leadership event. You have to promote yourself saying that you're a leader because uh, <laughs> you're, you're not just volunteering. You are leading the Haas alumni into, into this new year, hopefully. It's going to be nice and bright and getting out of this crazy situation. But the interesting part is everybody is working together to yeah. find a way to stay engaged. And that was the whole point of getting together with the leaders from all the Haas chapters in California and some other part of the country. There was somebody like from Boston, even if it was late at night. It yeah. was great to see so much engagement. So pardon for my wordiness, but it, it was so awesome. No, actually, I want to talk more about that. You're a leader in the uh, Los Angeles chapter, correct? Uh, that's correct. We just want to hear kind of what does that involve? Because I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of alumni that one, are not engaged or as engaged as they could be. And two, just some thoughts on how we can really activate more of our alumni. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been engaged with the board of a lay chapter for the past uh, three years. They actually call me once because they want to do an event at my family winer in Los Angeles, and I helped them organize that. And then I got sucked in. I helped uh, my friend Chris Pavlik organize a, a fun lawn bowling event in uh, in Hermosa <laughs> Beach where I live. And yeah. it was just fun. It was just so amazing to see happy people having great experiences. So it wasn't mm -hmm. just about school. It wasn't just about allegiance. It was about having a good time with people that are technically your family. And when I got engaged, it was, let's find a way to have people be engaged with their alumni and not just show up at an event because they want to support the chapter or mm -hmm. show up at an event because I haven't really been involved. So I just want to go and, and do something or just donate some money. Actually show up and have fun and enjoy the experience because some of the events are a lot of fun. I mean, you yeah. go to a winery and uh, you actually have somebody who's part of that family, even if not involved in the business, but it gives you a much better experience. He can give you backstories that you would never hear about. You can get some special treatment during the event, and that's <laughs> something that is special. We did a brewery event. That was so much fun. We got special stories. So what we're trying to do now is to get new blood into the chapter because you need more energy. You mm -hmm. need people from different generations bringing different perspectives. People need different things. But LA is such a difficult place to get together because of traffic, <laughs> because it's so big. Yeah, and pre-COVID. <laughs> exactly. Let, let's leave COVID aside for a second. It's not easy. You organize an event and people who are nearby show up. Unless it's on a weekend and it's something special, maybe at a museum, maybe a sport event, uh, it's really hard to get people out. So mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is exactly trying to differentiate events, bring different people with different backgrounds who lived in different areas into the board and be champion of new events, bring new ideas. The more we keep people engaged, 
the more everybody is having fun. And that's the whole thing. You don't want to see always the same people. What we want to do is just bring this spirit of, of engagement and happiness and help each other. I really like that mindset that you share because very often when we think about alumni or engaging with alumni, it's in a professional capacity or it's in a business capacity, right? It's There's some motive behind it. I need to broaden my business network versus just thinking, you're absolutely right. This is our family and we should just be having fun together. And I think starting at that point of building a relationship is a much more meaningful starting place as well. If you want yeah. to talk business and you're Italian, I mean, in, in Chinese culture, similarly, it's all about building that relationship first before we start talking about business. <laughs> I mean, you know, besides the cultural diversity part, it's also how we approach the welcome reception for the new houses for the new admits this year mm. it wasn't just about let's talk about career let's talk about the industry it's okay you might be new to la or it might be that you're coming back to la because of covid and before you were there it was yeah. more like how can we help you at the human level if you need uh, to get in touch with somebody in la who can help you with life matter not necessarily academics not necessarily career but life normal yeah. life so sometimes people forget about that element that you can reach out to alum for personal problems they might help you with something that is happening in life yeah. not just professionally Let's, you know, we've heard a little bit about you mentioning your family winery here in LA. Let's hear about your background, where you're from, where you grew up. My hometown is Bergamo. Not many people know about it. It's a, a small town of a footy of, of Italian Alps. It's a, technically 50 kilometers away from Milan, but n nobody really ever heard about it. Unless you're flying Ryanair from London to Milan, in that case, you actually land in my hometown. But I grew up on a vineyard, or better, I, I split time. Like I was studying uh, in the city and living in the city with my parents, but I would spend every weekend and all my summer vacation in my grandparents' vineyard. And it was just fun. It's farmy type of, type of situation, but it was, it was just great. The wine was good. First time I tried wine, I think I was two. Um, <laughs> by mistake, I grabbed a glass of wine and I drank it. And apparently I liked it. <laughs> and it all started from there. But it was just a magical time for a kid to be able to have the open mind of a city and being in touch with many different people and seeing the latest technology and the latest in society, but also spend some time away from the craziness. And uh, just playing, playing in a vineyard and then trying to help the family and sometimes play with animals or the bull escapes from the barn and uh, chases you and your grandfather hits the bull in the middle of the head. So it <laughs> doesn't kill you. A, lo a lot of fun, a lot of fun stories. It definitely affected me as a human being because I always uh, have with me that spirit of, of happiness that comes from my childhood. And that's my pursuit of happiness. I know it sounds like 
Harald than Kumar, if you will. But it's true. You try to find happiness in everything and find uh, find your happy place. And uh, when I moved to LA, I decided to live by the beach because it makes me happy. I love to play beach yeah. volleyball and this is my happy spot. And uh, yeah, my American side of the family actually owns the San Antonio winery in, uh, in Los Angeles. My great-grandfather came over around 1910 with two brothers. And one of the brothers, my great-granduncle, Santa Cambianica, founded the winery in 1917. Wow. And has been there in that very same block since then. It's more than 100 years old. It's one of the oldest things that you find in Los Angeles. And it's yeah. actually an interesting story. I mean, when people come to visit, I love to take them around and tell them the story, especially when prohibition put every winery out of business or pretty much every distillery out of business and my uncle stayed in business uh, because he got a special exemption from the catholic church to make sacramental wine Mm. and he was able to stay in business everybody else uh, had to move on with their lives so after 10 years of prohibition he was the only one in business, the only one making wine. And since then, has been pretty much the only one in the downtown Los Angeles area. So it's it's interesting to see how family circles back in my life <laughs> anywhere I go. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really curious. We talked a little bit before this call, and you had mentioned that you had picked the Berkeley Columbia Executive MBA program because of the fact that Berkeley is very popular in, in Asia. Right, the name is very well known in Asia, whereas the Colombian name is very well known in Europe because of its proximity to Europe. But it makes me wonder: How did you pick to come to Los Angeles, all the way from, you know, Milan? Yeah, pretty much after high school, I moved to a big city and I went to Politecnico di Milano. It's uh, pretty much like Italian MIT. Yeah. So it was an interesting experience and uh, commuting every day because you don't really live on campus, really party like in that crazy animal like you do <laughs> over here. You just go and study. You get up early in the morning, have a train at like 6 or 6 30 in the morning, go to school for 12 hours, and then you spend the rest of the time doing your homework and preparing for exams. And you do that for five years because at that time there was no concept of bachelor degrees you would go and get a master or walk out with nothing in your hands and uh, it, it's a definitely a different a different thing and people who were pushing were pretty much just doing that 24 uh, 7. the average age for people to complete their courses so just the exams not counting the thesis was yeah. 28. And I said, there is no way I'm going to stay and study for almost 10 years. I get it, the value of an MIT degree, but still, it's it's not going to work. So I pushed it as much as I could. And I actually graduated finishing my one-year thesis at 24. Wow. So I pushed after that and said, now I'm out for good. <laughs> what did you study there? I studied electrical engineering. And specifically telecommunication security. It's uh, interesting stuff. And then, so you, you worked in Italy pretty much all the way until uh, you started the program, it looks like. Oh, one to beginning of 08, I 
work in Italy and around Europe. And then I moved to the States. I just, my plan was actually different. Sean, I wanted to go to the UK. That was my plan. Yeah. And I was working for actually an American consulting company in Milan, and we got acquired by BT, British Telco. So I said, okay, if I go to London working for BT, I'm pretty much going to work in a post office and just uh, be a barcode and be a no one. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I spoke with uh, some people in the company and I said, well, you know, I love LA. I visited my family. I have two branches of a family there. So I would love to go there. Actually, people were very helpful and took everything seriously. So we started working on things. I was in Las Vegas, uh, I think it was July 2007. I was speaking at a security conference and I guess they liked me and they were impressed. And we had a serious conversation about relocating. And that was pretty much what I did. I moved on the 6th of January 2008 and I was lucky enough to have an early flight because that day there was actually a major earthquake in in Italy and they shut down a lot of airports. It, it feels like, you know, <laughs> being back in the 1800s, like probably immigrants at that time brought more stuff. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, you really knew how to pick your places. You picked from uh, one earthquake zone to another earthquake zone. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> a little rattling. <laughs> so tell us more about your work. What do you do? So as I said, I started with an internship in a consulting firm and I was doing like security research, developing some fun stuff, some gateways to make security systems communicate. So very nerdy stuff at the beginning. And I like it to be completely honest. It was a lot of fun. I was doing uh, a lot of security work and little by little I transitioned more into consultative roles. So not just looking at the tech side, also looking have a business side, looking at the managing projects. And when I decided to work for a more international company and I started working for, uh, for INS that was based in Santa Clara, California, we were like a hundred people in Europe. So just a small team and we were working together a lot, getting together a lot. I was uh, all over the place in, in EMEA, not just in Europe, actually. I had some crazy project in, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, like one day they call me in the office and say, oh yeah, tomorrow you have to go to Bahrain. And say, uh, <laughs> excuse me? Uh, yeah, you have to go to Bahrain. And we got, we got this project and uh, we need you to go down there. And I said, okay, but above the other project I'm working on, can you send somebody else? And then, no, 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 you have to go and take care of that. It was just some crazy political situation. So they needed my... Italian schmoozing capabilities, I guess. But it was, uh, yeah, one of those crazy stories. And I got tossed into a crazy environment. And there's when I realized, I don't know, that I'm personable and <laughs> people like me. Yeah. And it, it was fun. Actually, people were like very old style at the beginning and they had some crazy friction with uh, our partners over there. And I just stayed there, invited people out uh, for lunch, for dinner, and just showed that I was a human being, not just a professional. And at the end of the project, they actually invited me as a special guest to the Formula One circuit in, in Bahrain that normally is close to the public. They actually took yeah, me yeah, there yeah. and gave me a tour. So it was absolutely awesome. And when I went wow. back on that, I said, oh my God, this is awesome. The world is such a big place. And they put me to manage global programs for BT. And for some reason, they think the accent helps being less threatening. 
when you're mm-hmm. working with other people, especially when you're working with somebody around the world who might have a, a language barrier. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, you're perfect for that stuff. I got uh, kind of stuck in that role for a little bit. And I decided to go to business school as a sort of challenge because I was just too comfortable in that position. And that's when I decided to go to business school, study for my GMAT with a couple of my cousins here. And I have a few options. I was debating between UCLA, Anderson, and and Berkeley, Columbia. Mm -hmm. And then I decided I'm going to go for Berkeley, Columbia, because I can really spend the Columbia degree in Europe uh, and spend the Berkeley degree on the West Coast and in Asia Pacific. And that was the beginning. I flew up for a couple of meetings and I just loved it. Hmm. After a while, I just needed a change. So I switched to another company, ex-co-worker uh, that moved there, was building a new team. So he called me over and helped him out for a year and a half. And then I said, I need a break from the corporate world. I have this idea of uh, integrating more traditional strategy and management consulting methodologies with something different with something Mm. that makes things more agile and more flexible and being blessed enough uh, that my entrepreneurship professor uh, at Berkeley was Steve Blank and that I was able to go through the Lean Launchpad. That was the only year that Steve Blank taught the Lean Launchpad at Haas. I mean, that changed the way I look at every single business problem and Mm. looking at the overall business model, looking at the real big picture every single time I look at a business problem. So I said, I need to do something to integrate this into my day-to-day methodology. And so putting all the pieces together and coming up with something that is way more comprehensive and way more flexible than uh, the step-by-step approach that many consulting companies use. And usually they go by the script, they just try to reuse the same things uh, over and over. And uh, I wanted something that was flexible enough to be applied to any company, from startups to established businesses. Hmm. And that's when I came up with the idea for Bizal, which is my company. It's a boutique management consulting company, and it stands for business alignment. And it's pretty much like aligning all the components of business. And the two main areas are business strategy and IT strategy. That's uh, pretty much the focus. I speak about aligning and optimizing business as much as I can. I was a speaker at uh, Cal State LA last week for Professor Mark Wynn. Last year, interesting enough, they called me Cal State Fullerton for international business to speak about diversity and cultural difference and, and inclusion. So I guess that diversity part of me comes out no matter what. Yeah, <laughs> Probably it's the accent. It doesn't go away. But it's what I love to do, to be completely honest, is solve problems. And I call myself a technology anthropologist. I like to observe uh, real life problems, observe people, observe companies and see what's going on, understand their need, and then use technology to solve those problems. So I never think technology first. First is always Mm. a business problem. So that's uh, the the real passion. And what, what I love to do is trying to find ways to do things in a better way. So if you are not methodical, you are wasting a lot of effort. So you want to 
go for try and error. That, that's totally fine. I mean, that's part of the agile approach, right? You have an hypothesis, yeah. you test it, and you decide if that is working and if it's not. But you do need a framework, you need a baseline so you can test against that. If you don't have that, you're just shooting arrows here and there with no real target. there's a million ways to say this but what gets measured gets managed what gets measured gets done and let's dig into that a little bit if you don't mind because i'm just really curious what are some major frameworks that you advise on i put together my own (laughs) to be honest because uh, i love to to take a one view of a company and have uh, my framework in mind what i always recommend to do is to find a framework that works for the the state of mind of a founder. Everybody thinks differently. I'm very framework oriented. So if I speak with somebody, I'm just going to pretty much create a framework in my mind uh, and put all the information into that framework. But some people are not that organized. Some people are, are a little more creative. So they need something that works for them. But what I always tell people is start with the basics. And to me, the business model canvas is the way to look at a business in a very holistic way. It's not comprehensive for everything, but it gives you a very good idea of what the big picture is. It helps you understand that there is more than just the sexy marketing side of an idea and of a business venture. There is more. There is the operational side. You have to figure out how to monetize, what's your revenue stream, but also what's your cost base. So there are so many different things that come together. So having a framework that works for you is really important. So start with the basics. If When you're looking at strategy, it's not that you are going to forget about the three Cs, the four Ps, Portis, five forces. You still use that because you're going to touch all those elements. Otherwise, mm. you're not going to be comprehensive. But if you bring it into something that works for you, that works for your mental approach to problems, That's the most important thing. Some people that are more on the product side might actually like the product management canvas that is derived from the business model canvas, uh, but it's a little more specific about the interaction between the different components uh, of the the business model. So instead of only focusing on, let's say, the customer segment, the value proposition, uh, the interaction with the customer, how you're selling, it's actually the interconnections between all these elements. And it's, it's interesting. Professor Sarah Beckman actually, I think, came up with the, with the idea and it's fascinating. But there are also people that are working more on specific stages of a company and that they're working maybe just on the growth side, which is always exciting, but it's also very chaotic and confusing sometimes. So mm-hmm. uh, growth hacking canvas 
very interesting. Well, for products, uh, the hook model is, is fascinating. So there are so many things that you can put in place. So you just have to find something that worked for you to create, uh, as I said, that baseline. So you can move forward from one state to another, knowing what you're doing and not just coming up with random products. Another thing that I always love to, to talk about is the alignment between simple things like, okay, you have a business model, you know what you're doing. You have maybe a business strategy. This is what we have. This is our idea. This is our structure. These are our goals. And this is the way to reach those goals. This is what we are going to do to get there. Hmm. Clearly, it needs to be aligned with the business model. You cannot have a strategy that is completely misaligned or completely mm-hmm. disconnected. It's it just like shooting for the moon, but you're driving a car instead of a rocket. It doesn't make any sense. But then there is another element, which is actually the product strategy and the product mix and the product market fit. Some, especially with smaller companies or with companies that are expanding their product line or trying to grow too fast, they are coming up with ideas that might be good idea per se, but might be absolutely the wrong product for that company. I help some startups that we're starting with five products. And I was like, why are we starting with five products? It doesn't make yeah. any sense. You want to have a core product and maybe it's a little complex. So it might be a combination of three different elements that you might want to call a product. But then you have this ancillary one, and then you have, have this accessory one that is on the side, and you're just wasting so much time and so much effort doing other things that are not core. The interesting part is sometimes these products are actually cannibalizing other products. And cannibalization is not necessarily a bad thing if you're trying to innovate. If you think that uh, a product is getting old and you're getting attacked by competition, you want to actually cannibalize that product that is going to be under attack and innovate and eat it yourself before somebody eats it. If you want to stay ahead of a curve, that's a good thing, but you don't want to do it early on when you haven't launched that product yet. So it doesn't make much sense. Or when you are creating a product that puts like so much pressure on the operational side. You have limited resources, especially when you are a startup, when you are a small business. And if you consume too many resources on an additional product that is not driving revenue in the right way, you're just wasting opportunities because you might just want to grow the products that are actually driving margin instead of driving other products. There are products that are not supposed to be monetized. There are products that are just enabler. You might Mm -hmm. attach them to some other products or you might just leave them for free, maybe to create network effects. So you really have to consider all these elements and this alignment of three things, business model, business strategy, and product strategy is absolutely fundamental. So just drawing three circles and put them in alignment as a mental state, as a mental framework is very useful. And then you have a complexity of running a company with all the enablers. And with enablers, I mean, you know, I love technology, so I always start with technology, but there is also process. 
there is also talent. There is also organizational structure. And in the same way, you can look at all the different functions. You can look at sales. You can look at marketing. You can look at uh, finance. And everything needs to be in alignment with your model, with your strategy, and with your product. So just that simple framework to tell people how they should look at the big picture, how they should look at things. And don't forget about pieces here and there. And I get it. When you are so busy with an idea, when you're launching a company or when you are a small business and everybody is working 15 hours a day, 16 hours a day, their head is down crunching and looking at the day to day and dealing with craziness sometimes. It's easy to forget about that, but you need to remember that. That's why it's so important to have a framework or have somebody who reminds you that you need to look and realign things. Because when Mm -hmm. you start having that disconnect, the trajectory starts going going far away very quickly and it's hard to bring it back. I I have a couple of questions around this, Ashley. So, you know, you talk a lot about alignment, right? Uh, Do you often see startups or companies having more than one goal and how to prioritize your goals? That's difficult for any company to have a clear goal in mind. Some companies have clear goals depending on who is the person you talk to. So right. you, you have sometimes two founders or two partners in a business and you talk to a person and say, oh yeah, we're going to grow the business like two or three times in, in five years. And say, oh, yeah. wow, that's a very aggressive, but at least you know what you want. And then you talk to the other one and the other one says, I want to double the business in the next 12 months. I was like, okay, great. What's your growth plan? What's your strategy for that? It's like, oh, for that, you might want to talk to my partner. I say, like, yeah, I talked to your partner. And uh, the <laughs> idea was completely different. So yeah. <laughs> what's going on over here? So it happens, it happens very often because playing with numbers is hard and easy at the same time. It's hard because to come up with the realistic numbers and numbers that make sense. So y- you have to be realistic with metrics. It-, it can be really hard to come down with something that that, that actually makes sense, but it can yeah. be really easy to throw out the number right there. And sometimes you don't know. So the one lesson from Steve Blank is you want an idea that is gigantic and so much opportunity that at least at the beginning, you're not focusing on, on finances and creating uh, creating financials and projections uh, and up spending hours every day and dating and updating. You actually want to work on the model. You want to go out of the building and talk to people and test ideas and test hypotheses and make your product better and better and better. And at some point when you actually have a product, you actually start selling. At that point, uh, you might have a better understanding of the numbers and the projection. So many numbers of startups are completely based on assumptions and up in the air. They don't make any sense. It's okay. How how do you validate these numbers? I I love that you you did your pro formas uh, and uh, I I love to do that usually late at night. That's my mind. It works that way. But how do you come up with the numbers? What are the assumptions? Okay. Have you tested the assumptions with the market? Have you ever talked to some potential customer? Uh, Or is this just an idea up in the air? What are the metrics that you're using to measure success and to align to the business goals? 
Mm-hmm. So if you start in the nebulous way up there, well, what are your line with absolutely nothing? So you need something that is crisp, can be right, can be wrong, can be just in the ballpark with a certain error, that's fine, but at least it's there. And then, okay, our technology investments are going to be this and need to drive these numbers mm-hmm. that are aligned with our growth strategy. And the same is going to be for the hiring strategy. We are going to need uh, top talent in these areas. We are going to need maybe just to cut costs in these areas and uh, maybe outsource, maybe offshore. Uh, but when you know where you're going, you can figure it out better and you can put KPIs in place that, that are significant and uh, that are meaningful, let's put it that way. That's really good advice because when we look at the business model canvas, at least when I advise entrepreneurs on the business model canvas, sometimes it becomes a little overwhelming because you realize, oh, there's so many shiny things, right? There's this piece and this piece. But what I think you're reminding everyone is that you need to look at this more holistically as well. It's like, just find a goal, pick a goal, and just start going at it versus being indecisive. And I think that's where at least from experience as an entrepreneur, you have the curse of choice, right? Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And, and that's the thing. It's, you can look at a business from many different angles, but yeah. it's like some companies don't even know w- what they want to be. So how mm-hmm. I actually start my framework, and I don't want to anticipate too many things, but it's, it's pretty simple. It's like a pyramid and it starts at the very top with the vision. Yeah. And then the mission, and then you go down to the strategy and the goals and how you align things. It's extremely simple. But the top of the pyramid of the vision and the mission and what are the the company values and what is really important to you as a business leader needs to be crystal clear. And everybody should know about that. That is like the part that cannot be uncertain. It needs to be crystal clear. If you don't know what's your vision and what you're aspiring to and what's your mission, people are going to be a loss and say, oh, we are creating a good product. What you're trying to do is not creating a good product. What you're trying to do is make the world a better place or revolutionize the way people grow food. You need to have that top of the pyramid absolutely shiny crystal clear otherwise everything under that is going to fall apart and and that's why it's so important to to establish that uh, sooner than later and have that uh, culture the company culture figure out it's not like when you have a business idea and you're trying to figure out what to do, if it's if it's viable. I mean, you need to get a little bit into the company. But when you're shaping a vision in the future, you need to think about those things. You need to think about the people that you want around you early on. Because if you get the wrong founder, you're going to get in trouble. And how many startups blow up because they have the wrong people? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Uh, at the beginning there is a great synergy between the co-founders and then and then they fall apart so it, it is crystal clear 
not just what you're trying to achieve, what's aspirational, but also the, the moral, ethical dilemma that comes with that is like yeah. who you want to be and how we want to get there. So uh, maybe, maybe I'm a little too philosophical. No, no, this is very true because I think co-founders don't think about alignment early enough between their own values, between the co-founders, right? Between the teams. It's just not something that's top of mind when you're in the honeymoon phase and everything's exciting and shiny. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, and there is one thing that uh, maybe people forget about when they get together as partners, not necessarily founders. It can be just any type of partnership is how do you slice the pie, essentially? Mm -hmm. So how do you eliminate the resentment? that sometimes comes out of working as a partnership. I'm working harder, I should deserve more. My partner is stupid and is coming up with bad ideas, or my partner is not doing anything and I'm doing everything. How many situations like that you hear about every day almost? It's insane. So you want to also set up a structure that allows you to work in that way. Think slicing the pie the title of the book or or a methodology to actually address the problem. Chris Pope actually talked to me about that a few years back. And I think it's something that the business owners uh, that have partners should look more into, especially when uh, you are in very early stages. And as you said, honeymoon time, it's fantastic. But then reality strikes and having something in place, a structure, a framework in place also to move on as partners is very important. Yeah. And if at some point you decide to part ways, if you had a structure in place, you know exactly where you are. Yeah, You know exactly what one is entitled to. So I think it, it removes a lot of uncertainty because the, there is already enough uncertainty. So at least the things you are in control of, uh, try to control. Mm -hmm. I like it. We're coming full circle in this conversation talking about managing relationships, something that, you know, very early on that you realize that you're passionate about. And that's something I think startups and entrepreneurs forget about is the people element, not just shiny ideas and building technology. So yeah. this is really technology great. People actually forget about people more than anybody else. They think <laughs> that technology solves everything. Yeah. I mean, look, look at the cybersecurity world. Yeah. There are absolutely phenomenal solutions, phenomenal technologies out there. And then where everything fails, most of the time, is people using them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> people not following the rules. Or people doing other things. People breaking those technologies. So yeah. you also have to consider the human factor and how you actually prevent that. What can you put in place? It's not just control. Sometimes it's about don't frustrate people so they don't break the rules. Actually think about uh, the customer. Think about the users. I mean, have this kind of customer-centric type of approach so people are not frustrated and, and they're not pushed to break the rules or do something stupid. So yeah. that, that comes with thinking about uh, who's using your tools, your solution, your products. Yeah. Don't forget about people. It's absolutely important. That's an important message to end on. So 
Thank you so much, Marco, for coming on the podcast. This has been a real pleasure chatting with you and learning about your, your past. No, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And this has been great. I think people need a little more inspiration these days. And thank you so much, Sean. Thanks, Marco. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.